Luke chapter 15 is entirely made up of three of Jesus's parables. They're all kind of grouped together with no breaks in between them and bundled as sort of a single teaching. And it is not hard to spot a common theme in all of them. In the first, a shepherd loses a sheep. In the second, a woman loses a coin. In the third, a man loses a son. It's almost too obvious, right? They are all parables of losing and finding. We usually think of them that way and for good reason. But losing and finding are not the only themes these stories have in common. They are also all stories of rejoicing. I'm not sure I had spotted that common thread before. When the shepherd finally returns to the 99 sheep he had left all on their own with the one lost stray now secure on his shoulder, he is singing a happy song. He calls his shepherd friends together that evening saying, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. When the woman finally finds her lost coin, after spending the whole day sweeping the house and looking under the sofa cushions and moving all the furniture back from the walls, she dances around her living room. She calls her friends and neighbors that same day, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. And when the father finally has his younger son back in his arms, he calls for music and dancing and a feast, saying, Let us eat and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Yes, something is lost in each of these parables, and when it is found, it is an occasion for celebrating. It's an occasion for drawing people together to share in overwhelming joy and thanksgiving. If you had to give Luke chapter 15 a title, Rejoice With Me would be a pretty good candidate, I think. It's what the searching person in each of these stories finally wants in the end, other people to join in the celebration. That seems to go just fine in the first two stories. I imagine the friends of the shepherd and of the woman were perfectly happy to rejoice with them. But you might have noticed that's a little bit more problematic in our story today. Because in this case, nobody was expecting rejoicing. Nobody was expecting a party. The younger son was certainly not expecting a welcome home party upon his return, and for good reason. Some time ago, he had made the rather audacious request to receive his share of the family inheritance early. Normally, this money would have been given to him only at his father's death, of course, so to ask for it early was not exactly a polite thing to do. N.T. Wright says that in this time and culture, it's not actually too far from saying, I wish you were dead. It was at best a very impolite request, but the father honored it anyway, and the younger son took off with his pockets full. He squandered what had been given to him, and in time found himself destitute, hungry, and very alone. There at rock bottom, actually envious of the food that the pigs were eating in the field where he'd found work, Luke says he came to himself and decided to go home. You can debate here whether he was actually honestly repentant and sorry for what he'd done, or whether he was just sick of being hungry and looking for a good meal. 
but it's clear that he expected a very cold reception back at the family farm. He had disrespected the family once by asking for the inheritance early, and now he had further disrespected them by utterly wasting it and returning empty-handed. He had every reason to expect anger, chastisement, maybe even exclusion. So he prepared his speech and he rehearsed it along the road, no doubt expecting that he would knock on the front door of the house and be led into his father's room where his father would stare at him in silence with an icy glare. Maybe, just maybe, he could hope for a spot in the servants' quarters. But you know the story. He didn't have to knock on the door because his father came running before he even got to the driveway. His father, who, like a decent man of his time and culture, never ran, came flying out to meet him and threw his arms around him before he could even speak. He had his speech prepared, so he went ahead and set it into his father's shoulder. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father would have none of it. He was already too busy making plans for the party. The younger son didn't see that celebration coming. And, of course, neither did his older brother. He is, of course, the responsible one. The one who has always done what was expected of him, who has worked faithfully and tirelessly ever since he was old enough to help plant and weed and harvest. The one who never requested his inheritance early because he knew very well that would be extremely impolite. He's the responsible one. And when his younger brother shows up empty-handed that afternoon, he's where he always was, out in the fields at work. So hard at work, in fact, that he didn't even notice that anything out of the ordinary had happened until he heard the sounds of music and dancing coming from the house. And when he understands why, he's furious. And why shouldn't he be? He never disrespected the family. He never vanished and abandoned his responsibilities to them. He never wasted his hard-earned money on dissolute living. He's done precisely what was asked of him, year after year. And who is getting the celebration fit for a king? His loser of a younger brother. He stands outside as the evening approaches, fuming and refusing to go into the house. There's rejoicing at the center of all three of these lost and found parables, but it is most unexpected in this one. I mean, nobody really faults a sheep for wandering off. It's what sheep do. And you certainly can't blame that coin for being lost. It was hardly the coin's fault. It is easy to celebrate the return of those two. They're guiltless, after all. But the younger son bears responsibility for what he did. He made selfish choices. He made a mess of things. His slinking back in disgrace hardly calls for a party. The two brothers are very different characters, but on this point, they agree. It is so hard to get our minds around grace. On the one hand, it is incredibly simple. As Archbishop Desmond Tutu was fond of saying, grace means that there is nothing we can do to make God love us more because God already loves us perfectly. And there's absolutely nothing we can do to make God love us less 
It is so simple. The idea that we are simply, utterly, and unconditionally loved by God, without qualification, without limit. God's cup of love for you is already full to the brim. You can't add anything to it, and you can't drain it down. It's full now, and it always will be. That's just how it is. On the one hand, that is so simple. And on the other hand, it is so difficult and so strange. Because that's not how most of the world works most of the time. It's not how our minds work. We are so familiar with if-then thinking. If you do your homework, then you'll get a good grade. If you don't show up for work, then you probably won't have that job for very long. If you signal your turn, you'll keep yourself and others safe on the road. If you are kind to others, then they'll be kind to you. We are so familiar with that kind of thinking, because lots of things in life do, of course, work that way, that it can be hard to think of our relationship to God any differently. But there is no if-then when it comes to God's love for us. No, if I say this, then God will love me more. No, if I do this, then God will love me less. No, with God, there is only because. Because you're my child, I love you. Because I created you, you are precious to me. Because you are my own, I will never forsake you. The sons in the story struggle with this just like we do. Everything else in their lives is if-then thinking. So their relationship to their father must be too. If you royally mess up your life, then you must be loved and valued less. If you do everything right, then you must be loved and valued more. They only know that kind of thinking, but that's not how grace works. Grace says, because you are my children, I love you. Pure and simple, full stop. It is so simple and so strange and it is finally our true home. I don't know how this story connects with your life today. If it challenges some younger son guilt that you haul around, or if it bumps against some older son sense of fairness that you hold dear, wherever it touches your life, I hope it might invite you this morning into the joy of simply being loved. Because that is finally what's at the center of this parable. A father who loves his children unconditionally and who wants nothing more than to have them both in his embrace, to have them both inside at the party. Rejoice with me, he says. To them, to all of us, and to you. Thanks be to God. Amen.